I want to personally invite you to join me and all the other Brock stars for this year's 13th live and in-person plant stock event outside of Asheville, North Carolina in the little town of Black Mountain. It's 1,500 acres is loaded with wildlife, trees, trails, streams. It is a nature wonderland. And what's also a wonderland are all the incredible speakers that you get to hang with all weekend long, like Jane and Ann Esselstyn, Dr. Will Bolshewitz of Fiberfueled, Carly Bodrug, Miss Plant U, Dr. Gemma Newman is over from the UK. We have Dr. Don Musalem from the Mayo Clinic, John Mackey, the ex-CEO of Whole Food Market Stores, myself, Brian Hart, and a special appearance by the Plant Bros. Here's the kicker. All these Brock stars are there from Friday till Sunday, and they want to rub elbows with all of you, whether it's over buffets of Plant Strong Fair for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, whether it's going on an afternoon hike, a swim, pickleball, frisbee golf, kickball, cornhole, dancing. We're having live music. It's all there in this fun weekend extravaganza that we affectionately call Plant Stock. Simply go to liveplantstrong.com and then click on Plant Stock 2024 and grab yourself a ticket before they sell out. See you there. My initial reasons for wanting to be vegetarian were because I love the animals. And the more I learned about how you know, animal products, including eggs and dairy, get to our table and the horrible lives of, of veal cows and the mothers who are milked and the, you know, the, the chickens that lay eggs and the baby chicks that are, you know, killed early on because they're of no use just in order to make more eggs. That really, really tugged at my heart. But that said, I was also in my cardiology fellowship training and learning more about how, um, you know, how diet can help heart disease. And of course, I, I came upon your, your father's work. So not only was a diet that I was passionate about for the animals, but also something that I knew was healthier for people and for the environment as well. So it, it was a good, a good blend to me. And that it made sense that if, if this diet that's good for the animals is good for people, this is something I, I want to offer my patients. I'm Rip Esselstyn, and welcome to the Plant Strong Podcast. The mission at Plant Strong is to further the advancement of all things within the plant-based movement. We advocate for the scientifically proven benefits of plant-based living and envision a world that universally understands, promotes, and prescribes plants as a solution to empowering your health, enhancing your performance, restoring the environment, and becoming better guardians to the animals we share this planet with. We welcome you wherever you are on your Plan Strong journey, and I hope that you enjoy the show. Hello, my Plan Strong papayas, and welcome to another episode of the Plan Strong Podcast. I'm Rip Esselstyn. I've got papayas on my mind right now because this weekend, I was hanging out with Robbie Barbero and Cyrus Kambata. They are the, the two all-stars from Mastering Diabetes, and they're practically fruititarians. And we were double-fisting mangoes. We were eating the most amazing papayas, plantains, bananas, kiwis, 
it was a fruit fest. And my whole family just got so into it. These guys are really spectacular. And I'm still on a high from, uh, from having them stay with us for a couple days. But let's talk about today's episode. A few months ago, I read a quote from a cardiologist that really caught my eye. And it read, in over 11 years of medical practice, not a single plant-based patient under my care has gone on to have another heart attack, need another stent, or need bypass surgery. That is a super powerful statement. And that physician is my guest today. Her name is Dr. Heather Shankman, and she is an interventional cardiologist. And I want to focus for a second on a key phrase in her statement, plant-based patient. You see, while Heather performs complex angioplasties and other surgeries to open up clogged coronary arteries, she prefers to help her patients reduce their risk of heart disease through not only medication, but also a healthy lifestyle, including a plant-based diet and regular exercise. She is totally speaking my love language. Heather herself has been plant strong since 2005, and her book, The Vegan Heart Doctor's Guide to Reversing Heart Disease, Losing Weight, and Reclaiming Your Life, outlines her simple path to doing just that and living a very full and vibrant lifestyle. Let's welcome Dr. Heather Shankman. We're going to talk today about heart disease, heart disease and what people can do to, you know, they may think that they've got this, um, this death, death sentence hanging over their head. And I think what you're going to hopefully share with, with our listeners today is that um, there's no reason that you should ever have another heart attack or stent or cardiac event. And that to me is cause for celebration. I would agree. And that's why I love what I do for a living. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd love to dive in. Actually, you know, you wrote this book, the, the vegan health doctor's guide to reversing heart disease, losing weight and reclaiming your life. Who doesn't want any of that? It's all, it's all good stuff. And so, uh, so congrats on, on the book and getting it out into the universe, you know, writing a book is, it's not easy. And, uh, no, so it that, most certainly is not. <laughs> so congrats on that. I love having you on the show. I've had other heart doctors on the show before. I've had obviously uh, Columbus Batiste. I've had Kim Williams, Dr. Uh, Brian Aspel. I've had, you know, two of the pioneers to show that we can not only prevent, but reverse heart disease, Dean Ornish, and obviously my father, uh, Dr. Cobble B. Esselstyn Jr. And, you know, in reading your book, I really want people to understand, you know, why you went into medicine, why you were drawn specifically to the heart. I'd love for you to share why you're so jazzed about exercise and now why you're, you're this now it's ire womaning, marathoning, you know, uh, interventional cardiologist, but specifically too, what in reading your book, I was really drawn to you explain what heart disease is you know, what's going on with cholesterol levels, stroke, hypertension. So after we, we talk about your 
particular story, I'd love for you to drill home to people. What is heart disease? And, and so what's going on at a basic level? Because I feel like with all these experts, we've never done that before. Does that sound That's good? True. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. But let me start with this. So Heather, why did you decide to get into medicine? I honestly can't recall wanting to do anything else with my life, which is may sound a little bit crazy. I was the three-year-old who said I wanted to be a doctor. And one of my friends who I've known since kindergarten tells me I was running around kindergarten one day saying, I want to be a doctor because I want to play with people's brains. Well, that's clearly not the direction I went, but I've always known I wanted to use my knowledge to be able to help people. And I got into a combined degree program straight out of high school that allowed me to finish my bachelor's and MD degree in six years. So by the, by 23 years of age, I was, I was a a physician. I'm um, doing my internship. That's crazy. 23. Yeah, it is pretty crazy in retrospect. So throughout high school and college, did you excel in academics? Um, I did pretty well in high school. I mean, I was not the most social individual, but I, I did pretty well academically and it permitted me to get into one of these fairly competitive um, combined degree programs. So I have absolutely no idea what it's like to take an MCAT exam because I, I didn't have to. I was automatically admitted into medical school. Wow. And so where did you go for this combined degree? Well, I got my undergraduate degree from a place called RPI, Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, which is in Troy, New York. Mm -hmm. And after two years there, I was automatically admitted into Albany Medical College, which was basically just down the road. There were 20 of us who started the program. And um, of the 20 of us, I believe 14 of us finished. Um, I can tell you in retrospect, you know, it saved me a lot of money in schooling because I cut out a couple of years, but I think it's, at least for me, it was emotionally hard to be a medical student at age 19. I, I wasn't the most social individual growing up. Um, I spent a lot of time studying. So, you know, I, I really valued my years in college and you know, my sorority experience and, and having fun. So it was a hard transition for me. So you were two years in Troy and then were you four years in Albany? Yes. Yeah. And what did you think of Albany as a city? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Albany was an okay place. I mean, it's, it's fairly small. I'm originally from the Detroit area, which is a much larger metropolitan area. So it was smaller, but there were, there were things to do. And when you're in medical school, you don't really have a lot of time to do things. So it was fine. Well, I know Albany is the capital. It's 45 miles from the Esselstyn family farm. That's kind of oh, near, yeah. near, near Hudson Claverack area. So I always fly into to Albany quite frequently. Adorable little airport. Yeah, it sure is. <laughs> it really is. And so coming out of Albany Medical College, 1999, you what? I, I mean, in reading your book, it looked like you were interested in emergency medicine. And then you tried a little stent at family medicine and then hematology. And so how did, how did you land with the heart? Um, you know, I, 
originally I thought I would be very excited about the fast paced action of emergency medicine. But as I got to medical school, I realized there was, there was more to it than just that. And um, I, I found that during my rotations of third year of medical school, I was really drawn to internal medicine. I liked the, the focus on problem solving um, and taking care of adult patients. Um, and, and that's why I did my residency in internal medicine. And it wasn't maybe until a few months into my internal medicine residency that I figured out that I wanted to do cardiology. Mm. And there were two aspects to cardiology that really appealed to me. Um, The first, and really in general, it's the fact that you can help people. If people have heart problems, you can help them in two ways. You can help them before they have the problem and that you can help with controlling blood pressure, controlling cholesterol, improving their lifestyle, their diet, their exercise. So you can prevent things on the front end, but on the back end, if they actually do have an event, you can do something to help them. You can open up a blocked artery. You can fix a valve. Um, So that really appealed to me, the ability to, to use my knowledge to help people. Yes. And so then you decided to go into what, what form of cardiology? I am an interventional cardiologist. So what I am able to do is I can perform a coronary angiogram, which is a procedure to basically inject dye directly into the coronary arteries. And if there is an artery that is blocked off, such as in the setting of a heart attack, I can open that up and and save a person's life. And that's, that's pretty exciting. Right. And do you also do stents and stuff like that? Yes, that would be a procedure in which an artery would be opened and a, a tube called a stent would be inserted into the artery as a scaffolding to hold the artery open. Mm-hmm. And you also do angioplasty? Yes, I do. And, and that's along the same lines, opening up oh. a blocked artery. Right. But you don't do open heart surgery. I do not do open heart surgery. That is an entirely different track. The training to become a cardiothoracic surgeon starts with a general surgery residency, whereas um, to be a cardiologist, it starts with an internal medicine residency. Got it. Got it. How would you define a healthy heart? In, in In your book, you do a nice job. Like what does a healthy, how does a healthy heart function, for example? Well, I would say that in general, a healthy heart allows you to do the things that you want to do. But in order to keep that heart healthy, you need to make sure that everything around it is controlled to make sure that the blood pressure is under control, that the um, cholesterol is under control, that if there is diabetes, that that is under control and blood sugars aren't too high. Um, So that would be a healthy heart. So you say blood pressure under control. For people that know that, oh yeah, my blood pressure, it should be 120 over 80. What is blood pressure? What's an indication of, and why is it so important that we keep this in control? So blood pressure is the pressure that is felt inside the arteries of your heart. And um, having a healthy blood pressure, um, not too low, not too high, too low is rarely a problem. ensures that the heart is working well and blood is getting to to your tissues and organs. Um, Things that can raise the blood pressure include genetics, um, a diet that's higher in salt, um, and perhaps a stressful lifestyle and and not exercising. So having a healthy blood pressure is is very important. Um, Also on the converse, if blood pressure is elevated, it does increase the risk of having a heart attack or having a stroke. 
Mm-hmm. I think you wrote in your book that close to a third of Americans are considered hypertensive, right? So that's almost mm-hmm. 120 million of us. Um, and it's referred to as the silent killer. So it's very dangerous. What does it do to our, to our vessels when you have this high blood pressure? Right. So high blood pressure is called the silent killer because you could be walking around with a very, very high blood pressure. Our body gets used to blood pressure over time. Um, so you could be walking around with a very high blood pressure and, and, and not even know it if you, if you haven't had it checked and having an uncontrolled blood pressure does cause risk of, of many complications uh, most, most important of which would be heart attack and stroke and which is within the realm of diseases of the arteries of the body. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned, you know, a low, low sodium diet. Also, I would imagine that the curtailing processed refined foods, animal products, animal byproducts would also be, be helpful. Yes. Yes, I would absolutely agree with that. And the interesting thing is the diets that initially were used to treat high blood pressure back in the 1940s, before there were pills for blood pressure, <laughs> it was actually a, you know, a fully vegan diet um, because it actually was a diet that was, that was based on, on, on rice for the most part. And there were, it was found that if you profoundly change somebody's diet, you can bring their blood pressure down drastically. And then in the 60s and 70s, when the DASH diet, the um, dietary approaches to stop hypertension, when that diet was developed, and that's the diet that we are pushed to um, provide for people to control their blood pressure, um, the diet initially was designed on a vegetarian diet, um, um, though it in a, in a in itself does state that people are allowed to have a little bit of animal products and some lean meat and low fat dairy and whatnot. But if you get into the paper, there's an interesting phrase. They say that the diet is designed to have the benefits of a vegetarian diet, but to be palatable enough to people so that they will actually follow it. So basically suggesting that, yeah, blood pressure is best controlled with a vegetarian diet, but we don't think people can be vegetarians because they just won't do it. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Well, we know better than that, right? Absolutely. <laughs> and we'll and I want to talk about that in a sec. But you mentioned in the 1940s, I think you're probably referring to the work by Dr. Walter Kempner. Uh, yes. out of Duke, right? Yes, correct. Kempner's yeah. work. Yeah. And he was able to what he had them on a 5%, I think, protein diet. He did white rice because I think he wanted that protein down if I'm not mistaken, and fruit, and then also white sugar, right? Exactly. Yeah. So very, very low protein, very high carbohydrate and, you know, fairly low in calories as well. Yeah. You know, he, he got amazing results, not only with that, but also with weight loss. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've seen pictures of the before and after with the, the white rice Kempner diet and it's, I know. it's like night and day. No, it is night and day. Yeah. I, you know, I first learned of uh, Walter Kepner through Dr. John McDougall, who really admires his work and all that he was able to accomplish. So what, you know, so you, you just said that in that one paper, it said that, you know, we know what a vegetarian diet could do, but because it's not palatable, uh, <laughs> we're going to recommend this. How do you address like a major lifestyle change with your patients that come in and see you and you're like, Hey, (laughs) you know, I got the answer for you. Uh, How do you, how do you do that? 
Well, there's, there's a couple of settings in which I do that. One of those settings that I, that I find most fascinating is if I've seen somebody emergently, we're meeting for the first time, and I just opened up their, their blocked artery and saved their life and saved their heart from having massive damage. And they're on the cath, the cath lab table afterwards, and we're talking. And I'll say, you know, these are the medicines you're going to need to take, but you're going to need to change your lifestyle. Um, and you know, right there, patients lying flat on the cath lab table, we'll start talking about benefits of plant-based diets. And it's, it's amazing that the uptake that I often see if people say, okay, can I do that in the hospital? Say, yeah, sure. We can give you a plant-based diet here in the hospital. And they go with it and they run with it and they do really well. You wait, 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 time out. You have the ability to give your patients a plant-based diet in the hospital. You actually, that's an option for them. It, it is in fact an option. Yes. Really? That sounds, um, that sounds pretty unique. I haven't heard of many hospitals that do that. I know, you know, Montefiore has that as an option. And where are you? What hospital are you at? <laughs> well, I'm, <laughs> I guess it, it, it helps to be in Southern California. Um, yeah. I'm in the San Fernando Valley. My, my two main hospitals are Valley Presbyterian Hospital and Providence Tarzana Medical Center. Okay. That's great. And so what percent of your patients would you, would you say when you say, Hey, we can get you going right now, 50%, 75%. Twenty-five. You know, <laughs> it's funny that initial that initial enthusiasm is pretty good. You know, I'd say more than half are like, "Yeah, let's let's try it out." Um, and then I try to get a, a consultation with the nutritionist to try to emphasize to you know further emphasize some of the things that, I, that I'm telling patients so that it's something that they may be able to stick with once they leave the hospital. Yeah. yeah. Well, I would imagine that it, it's also very. It's much more sellable when you tell them, "Hey." this is the way I eat. Right. And it's, this is something that you could do as well. I mean, do you make that known to them that this is the lifestyle you follow? Oh, absolutely. And, and I make it clear to my patients, I'm not going to tell you to do something that I myself can't or won't do. Yeah. So yes, absolutely. And how long have you been following a whole food plant-based lifestyle? Huh. I, I've been a vegetarian since I was 16 years old, um, but I didn't adopt a, a whole food plant-based diet until I, I was in my, my cardiology fellowship. I think it was, I was um, 29 years old. So I guess I'm dating myself and saying that I've been on a whole food plant-based diet for 17 years now. Mm-hmm. And, and what inspired you to go all in with a whole food plant-based at the age of 29? <laughs> well, um, my initial reasons for wanting to be vegetarian were because I love the animals. And you know, the more I learned about how you know, animal products, including eggs and dairy get to our table and the horrible lives of, of veal cows and the mothers who are milked and the, you know, the, the chickens that lay eggs and the baby chicks that are, you know, killed early on because they're of no use just in order to make more eggs. That really, really tugged at my heart. But that said, I was also in my cardiology fellowship training and learning more about how, um, you know, how diet can help heart disease. And of course I, I came upon your, your father's work, um, you know, prevent and reverse heart disease. I, I read his book. I, I read his, his well, one paper at the time, the second paper wasn't out quite yet. Yeah. Um, and, and, and Dean Ornish's work, of course. So not only was a diet that I was passionate about for the animals, but also something that I knew was healthier for people and for the environment as well. So it, it was a good, a good blend to me and that it made sense that if, if this diet that's good for the animals is good for people, this is something I, I want to 
offer my patients. How did you find, for example, like my father's paper or Dean, Dean Ornish's work? Because it seems to me that a lot of cardiologists, and, and maybe I'm incorrect here, don't seem to be up on the research or the papers or some of these kind of groundbreaking books that are out there. Right. Um, I think that that's actually changed, um, at least in my time here in Southern California. Um, when I first came out here in 2007, I, I don't think there was anybody else who had an inkling towards plant-based diets. But now I, I can probably think off the top of my head about a, a dozen cardiologists who either are vegans or are proponents of vegan yeah. plant-based diets for heart health. And why do you think that is? Um, I, I just think that people are hearing more about plant-based diets. Um, there was the Forks Over Knives movie that came out almost, actually, I think it's 10 years ago at this point. So, you know, it's the information is more out there and doctors are, are as well as everybody else are picking up on it. So when you talk to other fellow cardiologists, they are they like, oh yeah, there's something to that. Or are they like, yeah. Come on, man. There's, there's, it doesn't matter what you eat. It's got nothing to do with it. It's all in the genes. Not, you know, I think most cardiologists at this point get it that, yeah, it's diet's important. And I, I even know cardiologists who I'm acquainted with who aren't necessarily plant based, but have asked me questions about, you know, how I do it, how I talk to my patients. So there definitely is the interest there. Yeah. Well, that's heartwarming to hear that. Very heartwarming. <laughs> yeah. Um, because I can tell you, I don't know, in my opinion, five, 10 years ago, it seemed like most cardiologists, they either hadn't read about it or didn't want to hear about it because, you know, hey, if I can put a stent in you, and, you know, I, I mean, you tell me, but according to what I've read here, especially like some of the latest research in The Lancet, unless it's a life-saving kind of procedure, stents really don't make a difference, but. Right. And you're, for the most part, you're right. When it comes to angioplasty and stents, you know, when, when I have somebody who's coming to me in the office, who's saying they're having chest pain when they exert, they rest, it gets better. And they're not having an acute event, an acute heart attack. I explain to them, I can open up your artery, but I am not prolonging your life. Um, I am you know, I'm, I'm not changing the course of disease. I'm just opening an artery to allow better blood flow and improve your chest pain. So you got to do the rest of the lifestyle. Um, you know, the medications, the aspirin, the statin medicine, um, along with the lifestyle, the exercise and, and eating healthfully. So you mentioned statins just now. I'd love to talk for you about statins. Again, let me tell you what I've heard and then you tell me what you think. So I've heard that, you know, people that have had a cardiac event, statins can help out, help prevent another event by about 30%. However, the NNT, the numbers needed to treat for people that have not had a cardiac event, a hundred people have to be taking a statin drug um, for five years for one person to show some sort of benefit. That's what I have read and heard. Um, so would love to know if you agree with that. Well, I, I do agree. And, and there's a little bit of nuance to that. And you are absolutely correct. If somebody has coronary artery disease and, or has peripheral arterial disease or has had a heart attack or a stroke, there is no doubt that a statin medicine will help to prevent another event and prolong life. However, 
if you're a person who has not had an event before, there's definitely some nuance. And it's not a black and white question. Oh, if your cholesterol is this, yes, you should be on a statin. It really is what we, what we call shared decision-making. Yeah. So there are certain conditions that people may have that do strongly predispose to coronary artery disease. So for example, if you're somebody who has an LDL cholesterol that is over 190, that is very high. You likely have a familial hyperlipidemia. And that's somebody who a statin does have some potent effect in reducing the risk of heart attack and stroke. Um, somebody who is a diabetic, especially somebody who's a diabetic over the age of 40, that is a strong indication that a statin does provide strong benefit. Now for others, we we, we calculate risk and we use a number of things to assess somebody's risk, their age, their blood pressure, whether they're a smoker, whether they're a diabetic and what their, their HDL cholesterol and total cholesterol numbers are. Um, in addition, we can use a coronary calcium score, which is a, obtained through a CAT scan, which can also help to determine what our risk is. So what I will often do is I'll sit down with my patients and we'll take all this information and say, okay, so given your numbers, your risk of having a heart attack or a stroke in the next year, in the next 10 years is such and such. Um, and typically our guidelines suggest that if the risk is more than 7.5% of having a heart attack or a stroke in the next 10 years, that a statin is a reasonable thing to take to reduce the risk of having a heart attack or a stroke. That said, if somebody's risk is like one or 2% of having a heart attack or stroke in the next 10 years, in all likelihood, if I prescribe somebody a statin and they take it for 10 years, they're not going to notice any, any difference at all. Um, but that said, it's, it's important to keep in mind that plaque progresses over the course of years. That it's not a black or white thing. So plaque will progress. And then at some point, an event can, will and can occur. So even some younger patients, um, you know, depending on circumstances, family history, or other issues, I may recommend statin therapy. But again, it's in somebody who has never had an event, it is correct. A statin is going to be less likely to prevent an event than in somebody who already has had one. Mm -hmm. And so you mentioned when you're trying to figure out that percent likeliness of a heart attack is what they eat also put into that equation? How they eat? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And it's, it's actually not part of the equation. Uh, that, you got to be kidding right. me. <laughs> don't you think, don't you think that that's probably, I mean, I could be if the, the most important thing right up there with maybe your, if you have like, I don't know, the genetic predisposition. No, I think it's important, but that said, I think that the numbers, the, the blood pressure, um, cholesterol numbers and diabetes reflect what somebody's already eating in a lot of ways. But that said, if somebody's willing to change their eating habits, yeah. then yeah, that's going to be potent. Yeah. Now, when you when patients come in to you to see you and um, they want to get off their statins or they want to get off their high blood pressure medications, are you supportive mm -hmm. of that? I really take that on a case by case basis. Um, you know, I I often see people who who come to me, you know, plant based or not plant based, who say I don't like taking medicines, but then their 
you know, cholesterol's sky high, their diabetes is uncontrolled and their blood pressure is uncontrolled. And I say, right now, that's not a reasonable expectation. But if you make some lifestyle changes, um, I, I think that we can definitely reduce the number of pills that you're, you're taking. I, there are patients who I have gotten off of blood pressure medications um, who have adopted a, a healthy plant-based diet. So yes, with diet, you know, reducing the number of medicines is definitely possible. Mm-hmm. With your, with your patients that are willing to go, do you like saying whole food plant-based? Do you like saying vegan? How do you refer to it? That's a great question. I'd say I, I more often use the term plant-based, but I'll use the term vegan. I mean, my, my book has the word vegan <laughs> in it on the cover. So, and my, my hand, yeah. <laughs> and, and my handles on social, uh, social media are all vegan heart docs. So uh-huh. I, I don't shy, I don't shy away from the word. Well, so are there any foods in particular uh, that you recommend that your patients really plow down? <laughs> Well, I'm a big advocate of, of keeping things simple. I'm a big advocate of, of getting vegetables, um, making sure you get several servings of, of vegetables a day. Fruit is good for you, that fruit should not be demonized. Um, uh-huh. you know, I, I hear way too often, oh my goodness, fruit has sugar. I can't eat fruit. And that's just not the case. You just, if you're a diabetic, you just can't eat an entire watermelon in a serving. You just have right. to be smart about it. Um, but you know, I, I really encourage my patients towards you know, minim- minimally processed um, plant-based foods and eating that way as much as possible, getting meals at home um, as much as possible as well, and minimizing restaurant foods and minimizing processed foods. And do you like, you like them to get like a serving or two of beans a day or a certain number of green leafies? You know, my father's just fanatical that his patients get five to six servings of green leafies a day, right. To make the, those endothelial cells come back to life. Right. Well, I think your father sees people who are, who are very, very committed. I see some of those, but I, I see patients along the whole gamut. And yeah. sometimes it's, sometimes it's a success if I can get my patient to eat a vegetable every day, just a vegetable and find wow. one that you like and eat it. Right. Um, and then, then we go from there. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> That's funny. You're right. The, the people that come to my father are a lot of them are very highly motivated. They've got their back up against a wall. It's, a lot of times it's life or death and they're willing to do whatever it takes. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, so let's talk for a sec about you. You were a heart patient yourself and I think it kind of informed and, and made you a little bit more empathetic for what some of your patients go through. What happened to your heart? Yes. So I actually did have a heart issue. And to be clear, I don't have coronary artery disease. I had a heart rhythm issue. Um, And I noticed while I was exercising that I started having these episodes of palpitations. And I could, if I stopped and I would take a deep breath, I could get them to stop. Um, And I ultimately was diagnosed with a condition called supraventricular tachycardia. It's basically an abnormal wiring of the heart where the heart will just beat fast and in an endless loop. And you have to find some way to, to make it stop. And at the same time, I was, I was competing as a triathlete and it would interfere with my exercises. Um, I'd be climbing a a hill and all of a sudden my heart would go into this, this fast rhythm. Um, And there's a couple of ways to treat this. There's medications which can slow down the heart rate, but 
again, it slows down the heart rate. And it is, is, I'm sure you know from, from doing triathlons and swimming that when your heart is slow, you can't do the things you want to do. You can't go as fast. Um, and I was concerned that, God forbid, what if I started getting this rhythm while I was doing an open water swim in the ocean? You know, I certainly didn't want to be floating in the ocean with this really fast heart rate. So I sought out a procedure called an ablation, um, which is a procedure with a catheter that goes inside of the body into the heart and finds where that rhythm is and basically burns it and, and, and gets rid of that pathway. And so in April of 2009, I underwent a catheter ablation for supraventricular tachycardia. It was a you know, same day procedure at the hospital. And I've, I've had no problems since. But one thing that it did give me the appreciation of is what it's like to lie on a cath lab table. Now, as, a, as an interventional cardiologist, I'm, you know, I'm the one standing next to the, the table looking at the patient. But I remember what it's like being on that on that table. And, and I, I, one thing I recall is just how small it felt. And I'm not a big person. I'm, you know, I'm not heavy, but I felt like the table was just so small. And I, I realized that I've got patients who are you know, double my size who are lying on that table. I can imagine how, how awkward that feels. And another thing that I gained an appreciation for is just, just the vulnerability of what it's like to be a patient, to be lying there, to be receiving sedation medicine medicine to not necessarily know what is, is happening to you. Because as I was on the table, the doctor was trying, was struggling a little bit to find where my arrhythmia originated from. And Mm -hmm. he was giving me medication that every so often I I would just have this feeling like, like this, this sense of doom. It's a medicine called adenosine that, that we use in cardiology and we use it fairly frequently. So now I have an understanding of what that, what that feels like. Oh, good. Um, So, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it was it was an interesting experience. You know, it, it gave me an appreciation of what it's like in a lot of ways to be on the other side. But it also helped me to be able to continue to do triathlons without having to worry that my heart was going to race out of control. Yeah, we'll be right back with Dr. Shankman. But I want to share another Plant Strong Proof podcast review with you. And I'm sharing this one because, believe it or not, I know how easy it is to lose your way or fall off the plan. And there are moments when you feel like you are absolutely 100% alone on this journey. In fact, I remember being the only firefighter in my firehouse that was eating this way and living this lifestyle. And I caught endless amounts of flack. And in fact, when I went over to fire station two and got the whole gang to eat this way, there were people in organizations that were so hell bent on bringing us down that they would send fresh, freshly cooked briskets to the engine two fire station. How crazy is that? And I know that they were doing it because they knew that we were onto something special and obviously they were threatened. And that's how I want all of you to feel, that you are on to something super special and don't let anyone take it away from you. With that said, here's a recent podcast review from J. Lewis H. Hey Rip, your podcast is my new favorite. You and your family have such a way about you. There is so much love, compassion, and ease 
when it comes to the relationship between you guys and your relationships with food. I was plant-based from 2016 to 2018 and even had a super healthy plant-based pregnancy and birth in that time. Currently, I'm finding my way back. I stopped due to feeling unincluded. Hearing your fireman friend's journey and the fact that he was alone within his firehouse makes me feel like I am not alone and I can do this. I'm going back to how I love to eat and I can inspire others as I did before. Thank you for the work that you do and presenting this podcast in the lovely way that you do. Well, I appreciate those words very, very much. Welcome back to the lifestyle. You are not alone. In fact, here at Plan Strong, we have a free community with over 30,000 people who are right there with you along the way. We share recipes, workouts, we lift each other up in support, and we also share our, our tough moments as well. So anybody that's out there, if you're feeling alone, consider joining us. You can learn more at community.planstrong.com. I want to talk about um, this tachycardia because it seems to me like a lot of people around me are having episodes of tachycardia. They're going in for ablations. Why do you think this is becoming what it seems to seems to me to be a popular procedure now for people? <laughs> well, there are a variety of different tachycardias or fast heart rates, arrhythmias. Yeah. The one that I had, which is called supraventricular tachycardia, is yeah. really common amongst all age groups. Um, but there's also an arrhythmia called atrial fibrillation. Correct. Yes. That's, right. that's, that, that's the one that seems to be very popular. <laughs> yeah. yeah and, and I see a lot of that. Um, the traditional risk factors for atrial fibrillation are older age, high blood pressure, diabetes, obesity, mm. sleep apnea, but there actually is a higher incidence of atrial fibrillation amongst endurance athletes. So uh, yeah. if you are an endurance athlete and you're, you know, going and going for, um, you know, hours and hours going for these long bike rides, these long runs, it does something to, to the heart that, that really makes you more likely to have these, these arrhythmias. Oh. So I think endurance athletes have a five times increased risk of having atrial fibrillation compared to somebody who is, who is not. But again, the definition of endurance athlete is not somebody who exercises an hour a day. It's, it's, it's far more than that. Right. So it's kind of what you're doing these days, right? Well, that's another topic because I, um, since I wrote the book, I, I had a, a child, so I've got you, a two and a half year old daughter. Oh yeah. And so did that put a kind of the brakes on all the training? It, it did because if I'm going to go out and do a triathlon, like I'm somebody, I want to train for it. I want to be really good at it. And being a mom and you know, doing what I want to do to be with my daughter, like going out and doing a six hour bike ride on Saturday morning, just, just isn't in the cards anymore. Yeah. Um, my exercise is six 30 in the morning. Most days I do a zoom workout for 30, 45 minutes. And, yeah. and that's it at this yeah. point. Well, it's funny how your priorities change once you have children, right? Um, yeah. But but for a while there, you were doing marathons and Iron Iron Man, Iron Woman's. Uh, you were getting after it, right? You became like this major exerciser. Oh yeah, I mean that was that was like a passion for me. It was it was 
for about 10 years, it almost was like my second job, but it, it was, it was so much fun. And I just love the competitive nature of it. I mean, I, I wasn't necessarily on the, the podium all the time, but you know, it was just good to get out there and just see how, how much I could do and you know, how I could compare to others. I loved it. Well, it sounds like you really sank your teeth in it. So and you got a good taste of it. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and, now, and now it's the, the, what's it called? Zumba's <laughs> Zumba's in the morning. Well, oh no, no, not, not Zumba. I'm, I'm highly uncoordinated. I don't oh. do Zumba. Um, but one of the coaches who, um, I trained with when I was doing triathlons, he owns a gym and, um, his gym has zoom workouts at six 30 in the morning, Monday through Friday. So, okay, okay. you know, I, I just, I picked that up during the pandemic and it's just, it's just the easiest thing to do. I don't have to go to a gym. I can just log onto my computer and I have a coach on the other end. Who's actually seeing what I'm doing. And there's like, you know, seven or eight of us who are working out. So we're, you know, even though we don't usually see each other in person, we're, we're kind of a crew. It's, it's neat. Yeah. 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 Fun, fun. Tell me this, you know, we all heard of the, the widow maker, right? The LAD, the left anterior descending artery. Why is it that that seems to be the, the one that clogs up first and foremost? Is that fair to say or not? I don't know that that's the most common artery yeah. to have um, issues with, but certainly it tends to be the most dangerous. Um, because it does supply that, that front wall of the heart uh-huh. and yeah. So people who have, um, a heart attack that affects that particular artery are at, at higher risk of, of death and disability. In your book, you have a whole chapter on how people can go vegan, plant-based without going out of their mind. Um, yes. what are some of your tricks? Some of your, my tricks. Well, I think it really depends on, on who the person is. I, I know a lot of people who like overnight make the change and they run with it and they're doing great, but sometimes it's, it's easier to make a gradual transition. If, if you're cons- somebody who is accustomed to having dairy in so many things, you know, look at, for example, what can you replace the dairy with? There's so many you know, plant-based milks that are out there, just about any dairy product that you have enjoyed. There's some sort of plant-based product that's very similar. Um, And then things like replacing meat with alternatives, preferably beans, lentils, tofu are better choices. For some, it's easier to make the transition with some of those so-called fake meats. What about dining out? Do you have any recommendations about dining out? (laughs) That's a great question. Um, Regardless, I think, you know, Dining out should be mostly for special occasions, um, but certainly go to restaurants where you where you know what's in your food, where you know that preferably you can get stuff with things on the side, or perhaps ask that your food be made without oil, mm-hmm. or that have you know things that are on the menu that are going to be healthier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. You also talk about how people should you know gracefully face questions. So like, let's say you're out with some friends and they're like, Heather, they probably don't do this anymore because you've been doing this forever, but maybe somebody's like, Heather, you, why do you eat that way or whatever? How how do you respond? How do you tackle that? (laughs) Well, I, I think I, I jokingly will answer, well, you know, I'm, I'm a cardiologist and, um, this is really what's best for the heart and 
that's why I do this. Um, I certainly am not going to get into the, the gory details of, of animal agriculture over, over dinner, um, <laughs> but I, you know, I might say something to the extent of, you know, I, I know where my food comes from and I don't, you know, don't want to be the source of, of that type of cruelty. And, and I'll limit it to that. Yeah. Well, it's nice. You've got that kind of ace in the hole or you're like, well, you know, as an interventional cardiologist, <laughs> if you would have seen what I see and uh, if you knew the research that I know, you too would be eat this way. You know, that's pretty cool. Congrats. Yeah, on it you. helps. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What about if you have a setback? What, what's your recommendation if you have a setback? That's a great question. Um, and I, I see that all the time in, in my patients. They're doing really well and then something happens in their life and good choices go by the wayside. It's just you, you sit down and you realize I can make a change going forward and this is a new day and I did it once before and get back to it. I, I agree. Get up every time. <clears throat> as long as you're willing to get up, you, 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 it will not take you down. Um, Dude. your last chapter in the book is about going whole heart and, uh, the journey to kind of total wellness, balance and peace. And, um, you have like maybe 10 different things that you recommend. I don't want you to go through all 10 things, but are there some that stick out to you? And if not, I can cue you up. <laughs> yeah. Cue me up here. i uh, happy to do it. So you recommend that people spend time in nature, which is something that's very important to me. Yes. 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 Yeah. Yeah. I think that, you know, getting outside and, you know, doing things outdoors, getting some sunlight, that's something that can help refresh you and, um, you know, get, get you going. So yeah, I'm a big proponent of, of exercising outdoors. I love getting out on the trails, going for a good trail hike or a trail run. Yeah. Yeah. I like to say that getting out and doing some form of exercise is almost like a little mini rebirth of sorts, right? And it resets your, your, your mind, your body, your, just your breathing, everything. It's, it's, a, it's a great reset. You talk about committing, and I like that word. You say commit to mm -hmm. sleep and rest. And then what are some of the things that you recommend people do to ensure a better night's sleep? Well, I think it's important that you get a good night's sleep because sleep is actually important for controlling blood pressure, for helping us to be well-rested, to make good choices. And also it may reduce the risk of, of heart attack and stroke. Having a good, a good sleep routine is important. So winding down towards the end of the day, having a routine um, before bedtime, limiting screen time, at least an hour before bedtime and trying to be consistent about, about sleep time and wake up time, yeah. even on the weekends. Yeah. Some of the other things that you mentioned that I completely agree with are, you know, get some black curtains, you know, make sure it's dark in the room temperature, you know, get that temperature somewhere. Like I like, I like 66 to 67. Actually last night I had the window open and it was 32 degrees outside. So it got down into the forties. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Felt like a black bear hibernating. But yeah, all those little things, right? You know, getting the right the right pillow, mask if you need it. I like I love having a white noise, right? That's very very soothing and kind of gets mm -hmm. me into that sleep state. So, couldn't agree with you more on on all that stuff. What about meditation? That is that something that you practice? 
It's meditation is something I probably should practice and I, I, <laughs> I dabble in here and there, but it's something I should likely do more. But meditation is, is definitely good. It's been demonstrated that it does actually lower blood pressure a bit. So you know, having a couple of minutes where you sit quietly and, and clear your mind is definitely something that, that's good to do. Yeah. When we've talked a lot about exercise and how much you love it, tell us why exercise is good for the heart and then also how it can, can and it's a very effective tool at combating depression. Yes. I think exercise is, is so good for so many reasons. Um, it naturally helps to lower blood pressure. It increase, increases insulin sensitivity. So it helps to naturally lower glucose levels. It, it's helpful for, for getting a, a good restful sleep if you exercise earlier in the day as, as well. There's a lot of people out there, especially, you know, given what's going on in the last two years with COVID <laughs> and stuff that have some very negative thought patterns going on in their, in their minds. How, how do you suggest people break, you know, like negative thought patterns? That's, that's a tough <laughs> one. And I, I see a lot in my practice, people who have with you know, the pandemic, they have just unfortunately gained weight because they aren't going out and shopping for their own groceries as much anymore. And they're ordering in food and the gym that they used to go to, they're not comfortable going to. So they haven't been exercising and, and their health has gone by the wayside as a consequence. Um, but I, I think that, again, it's, it's, it's a matter of recommitting and, and finding ways to do the things that you need to for your health. So let's say you're not comfortable going to the gym. If you got a pair of walking shoes, start, start going for walks, being outside is exceedingly low risk when it comes to catching an infection such as the coronavirus. Um, and rather than ordering you know, Grubhub from takeout places, maybe order your groceries online because those can be delivered too. Mm. So there's, there's ways of being healthy in spite of <clears throat> everything that's yeah. going on. Have you noticed at all any relation between COVID and its effects on the heart? There definitely has been an issue with COVID and the heart, especially earlier in the pandemic when people weren't vaccinated and we were seeing people who were coming in who were just very, very sick. Um, the incidence of heart attack in people who had COVID was very high. I can think of a dozen or so patients who I took care of who mm. had acute heart attacks and you know clots in their heart that we took care of. And a lot of these patients who had COVID and had heart attacks just didn't do very well, unfortunately. Um, but also there's myocarditis. Yes, we know that you can get myocarditis from the vaccine. It's, it's a low likelihood thing, but it can happen. But from the actual coronavirus infection, you definitely can get a myocarditis. What is that? Um, what is, what is myocarditis? An, myocarditis is an inflammation of the heart mm -hmm. um, that can take some time to recover from. And, and when you're seeing this myocarditis, is it in, and you think that's related to COVID, is it in younger people that you typically aren't seeing it in? Myocarditis with um, coronavirus infection, I think we, we see it in all ages. Mm -hmm. The myocarditis that occurs with the vaccine actually tends to be in men between the ages of 15 and 30. It's fairly uncommon, but it, it is there. I took 
care of a grand total of one patient who had um, vaccine-associated myocarditis. Um, he's an 18-year-old and was in the hospital, spent a day there. But in the long run, he did great, um, really mm -hmm. no untoward effects. Mm -hmm. So the myocarditis that comes with acute COVID infection is, is unfortunately, it's more significant and more of a health issue than the myocarditis that comes from the vaccine. Right. So the one with the vaccine, then was it fair to say that you get, you, you recover from it a little more rapidly? Yes, definitely recover more rapidly. Mm -hmm. You say you have a two and a half year old, did you say daughter? Yes, daughter. Nice. What's her name? Her name is Ava. Ava. And is Ava plant-based like mama? <laughs> oh, she most certainly is. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And are, are you married? I am engaged. You're engaged. Um, gotcha. Um, my partner and I, yeah, we've, we've been together for like almost six years. It's, um, and we, we've lived together and we planned on having a daughter together. I mean, the whole issue of engaged versus married. It's, it, I don't know. It feels anticlimactic, no. but yeah, we're engaged. Yeah. Beautiful. And is, what is his name? His name is Ray. And, and is Ray plant-based? Ray is not plant-based, but what we eat in the home is for the most part plant-based. Uh -huh, uh -huh. So, so is there any tension there with the food and how you're going to be raising Ava? Um, there really hasn't been tension. Um, he, he recognizes that plant-based eating is, is healthier. And it's funny, we go out and some of his friends will give me you know, garbage about, ha ha, you're a vegan. And, and he'll actually sometimes step in. Often he steps in, he says, well, you know, it's, it's a healthier way to eat. It makes sense. Um, so he recognizes that plant-based eating is, is healthier. So it hasn't been hard in raising our, our daughter that way. And, and she, you know, she's got a, a broad range of things that, that she likes to eat. It's funny. She, she loves sweet potatoes. She loves tofu. Yeah. Um, she loves avocado. So it's, it's, it's been a joy. It's been fairly easy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Does she like oatmeal? She's just kind of plus minus on the oatmeal. Right. Neutral. Um, what about you? What'd you have for breakfast today? What did I have for breakfast? I had a soy latte that I made before my workout and I had a banana with some, um, PB fit, which is, um, oh, yeah. yeah, it's, it's not quite peanut butter. It's, it's basically defatted, um, peanuts. So it's, it's, it's higher in protein and, and lower in, in fat. So I put that on my banana. And then after my workout, I had some soy yogurt and I had a, a waffle. Mm-hmm. Was that a homemade waffle or a store-bought waffle? It was a store-bought waffle. Yeah. I am. Yeah. I don't have the time to make waffles from scratch. I'm a car, uh, interventional cardiologist. Damn it, Rip! <laughs> Come on, <laughs> cut me some slack. Then, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. But I'm sure it was a vegan waffle. Of course. Of course. Of course. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Of course. Um, so now, when you're at the hospital. What do you do for lunch? Do you bring lunch? Do you, are you able to eat in the cafeteria there? It's a great question. Um, one of my hospitals typically actually does have a, a plant-based option mm -hmm. um, more often than not, but just 
to be on the safe side of thing, because neither of my hospitals has a terribly robust salad bar, particularly now since the pandemic. I used to be able to get a good salad at, at my hospitals, but you know they just don't want people you know, with fingers and your tongs and whatnot. So I just make it easier on myself. I, I just I just bring my food, makes uh-huh. it easier. Uh-huh. So that means you 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 kind of. So is it fair to say you usually figure out a way to make dinner at home and then you take leftovers the next day? Often I'll, I'll bring leftovers or I've, I've got like the same salad that I like to eat every day. So I'll just throw that together in a Tupperware and, and yeah. take that to go. And that's real easy. And I don't have to worry about heating it up. Yeah. What's that salad consist of? Um, I, I want to know. <laughs> okay. So you know, I, it's got the basics, the lettuce, the tomato. Ro- romaine. I like Is it romaine, butter? What kind of lettuce? It's, it's like a, a baby mixed green okay. salad. Yeah. So a little, little mix of things, some, some arugula, some romaine, some of the other stuff. Um, and Ooh. then I, I like heirloom tomatoes. Our farmer's markets here have the best heirloom tomatoes in Southern California. So I like to cut one of those up. Um, cucumber, carrot. Um, one of the things that I, maybe a little quirky about me is I love putting sweet potatoes in my salad. So I always have like a, like a baked sweet, preferably a Japanese sweet potato just because they're a little bit sweeter. So I'll put that in my salad. Um, purple, 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 Japanese sweet potato or a white one, a white one. The purple are good too, but I like the white ones better. I don't think that's quirky at all. I think that's absolutely perfect that you do that. Yes. And then what else? <laughs> and then I'll I just some, some form of uh, either beans or tofu, or there's something from the farmer's market here in Southern California. It's called tempfa. And it is, it's like a brown rice, um, black bean um, textured protein um, that's got a little bit of sweetness to it um, that goes really good in a salad. And then a little bit of miso dressing, oil-free miso dressing. Hmm. Is, is that a, like a store-bought miso dressing? I get it from the farmer's market. <laughs> the farmer's market. All right. Nicely done. Nicely done. Man, you know what, Dr. Heather Shankman, this has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate you coming on, coming on the podcast. Let me ask you this before we, before um, you go in and, and um, see another patient, is there anything that you want to tell, uh, tell the listeners that I've forgotten to ask you or is, you know, burning on your mind? I just want to let people know that I have an office in Tarzana, California, and I see patients both in person and via telemedicine. Mm-hmm. If you're local, I would love to see you in person in my office. If you would like advice on your heart health, um, if you are within the state of California, as that's the only state that I have a medical license in, I can actually provide you a telemedicine consultation. Um, if that's something that interests you, way to best reach me would be my, my office phone number. I've got a, a website for myself in my office. It's www.drheathershankman.com. Um, that's a great way to, to reach me. I'm also um, active on Twitter and on Instagram. My handle there in both places is at veganheartdoc. Um, and I also have a Facebook page for my practice. So I'm, I'm out there. Nice. We'll, we'll be sure to put all that in the show notes. For, great. For, for people to access. So that'd be great. Um, well, Heather, thank you again for coming on the Plan Strong podcast. I'm, I'm glad we finally nailed down a date. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And give my best to Ray and uh, Ava, right? Yes, exactly. Yes. Yeah. Good, good. All right. Hey, so can you, can you um, sign off with me and repeat after me? 
Sure. Right, Peace. Peace. No. Engine two. Engine two. Keep it plant strong. Keep it plant strong. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Heather Shankman. Thank you for the, the work that you're doing as a mother, as an athlete, and of course, as a plant-based cardiologist. You don't just talk the talk, you walk the walk as well. For resources on today's episode, simply visit the episode page at plantstrongpodcast.com. We'll see you all next week. And until then, keep it plant strong. The Plant Strong Podcast team includes Carrie Barrett, Lori Kordowich, Amy Mackey, Patrick Gavin, and Wade Clark. This season is dedicated to all of those courageous truth seekers who weren't afraid to look through the lens with clear vision and hold firm to a higher truth. Most notably, my parents, Dr. Caldwell B. Esselstyn Jr. and Anne Cryle Esselstyn. Thanks for listening.